thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the Why dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my seats fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. Now Dave, what's new in the world of science? It's an interesting story um, today and it appears that scientists um, have discussed, some European scientists have discovered what they think is a planet about seven times the mass of the Earth, which seems to be so light it could be made out of water. So it could be, instead of just having oceans a couple of kilometres thick, it could be mostly water. They've done this by basically pointing telescopes at thousands and thousands of different stars and then watching for stars whose brightness just dips occasionally. And this is what happens when a planet's going in front of it. So if a planet goes in front of a star, the brightness dips a little bit. Um, And from that, you can work out roughly how big the planet is. And then they've also got another telescope to have a look at the spectrum of the star. Because the planet's got gravity, it pulls on the star. And you can measure those tiny movements by looking very closely at the spectrum of the star, the colours in the in the light coming from the star. They can work out how much the star is moving. And so they can work out how massive it is, how heavy the planet is. Between those two, they can work out roughly what its density is. And it seems to be made out of mostly water. Well, that's interesting. How come they'd never noticed it before? Well, it's actually very, very hard to see planets um, hundreds of light years away. The technology's only really been there in the last 10 years, and they're only just starting to be able to see these planets which are very, which starting to get close to Earth's size, uh, just because it's just so difficult to see, because you sort of attempted to see a pinhead moving in front of a car headlight, because planets are quite small compared to stars. Wow. All right, interesting stuff. Let's get right on to our questions now. Now, uh, David in Peterborough says, um, science, what uses the most electricity, Christmas lights that stay on all the time or Christmas lights that flash, Dave? Well, essentially, um, especially the flashing ones tend to be LEDs, so they tend to be very efficient um, and they don't lose any energy by turning on and off. So for a start, they're probably about eight or nine times more efficient than a conventional filament light bulb, Christmas lights, the old-fashioned ones. And if they're flashing, then they're only on for a third or a quarter of the time. So that means they only use a third or a quarter of the amount of electricity. So overall, they could be 20 or 30 times more efficient than a conventional Christmas lights. So yeah, definitely the flashing ones and definitely the LED ones. Hmm. All right, I've learned something now. Hello to Tony, who says, um, does uh, Dr. Dave think the moon has any effect on us mentally? The, some people think it's to do with, it could be something to do with gravity. It's certainly not anything to do with the gravity of the moon, although it can move um, big things like the, um, the oceans around. Mm. The, the, the change in gravity on us is about one part in a thousand. And I'm pretty sure you might, when the moon's directly above us, we might get a few um, grams lighter. The moon's um, sort of right angles to us, we might get a few grams heavier. And I don't think we can notice that. But what we might be no- have noticed and what might have evolved to notice is the fact that when it's full moon, then the, it's very light and predators can hunt under a full moon. They've got very good night eyesight. 
And so um, if you're a dog or a, uh, some kind of dog or some kind of cat, um, a full moon is a wonderful time to go hunting because you've got the edge because you've got slightly better eyesight than the prey you're trying to catch. You can creep up close and you can chase out and jump on them. Um, and so because we've spent a lot of our evolutionary history as prey animals, as small monkeys, then if, it, the, if it's a full moon, then it's a time to be worried and time to be very um, aware of your surroundings and not sleep very heavily in case there's something creeping up on you. Mm, all right. Dave in Great Yarmouth has sent an email. He says, why doesn't the moon come crashing into the Earth, being attracted by its gravity as the moon attracts our tides? And what are the odds of the moon being exactly the correct distance from Earth and the sun to exactly cover during an eclipse? Dave. First bit, um, the moon is falling towards the Earth all the time, and it is, it's just falling. As it, like if you take a ball and drop it, it's, it's falling. The moon is just falling towards us. However, it's also moving sideways. So if you can imagine something falling towards the Earth, but because it's going sideways, every time it should have hit us, it's actually just moved out of the way. So because it's going sideways so fast, it misses. Every time it falls towards the Earth, it misses. And that's what we call an orbit. So the Moon is always falling, but it never hits us because it's moving sideways. It's exactly the same way that a satellite stays up. It's exactly the same reason why the Earth doesn't crash into the Sun. It's because we're moving sideways. Every time we should have fallen as far enough, far enough to hit the Sun, we miss. Yeah, it is kind of strange that the moon, I think it's actually not exactly the right size to form a solar eclipse. It's within about 5%. So it's about 5%, it appears about 5% bigger um, than the sun does in our sky. Um, the odds of that are fairly small, and actually through the Earth's history, um, it hasn't always been the case. Um, the moon used to be closer to the Earth, and as the Earth um, is slowing down, um, because of the tides, what it's actually doing is putting more energy into the moon. So it's actually the moon is going higher as the moon uh, is getting more energy and going higher as the Earth loses energy from the tides. Um, I did attempt to make some attempt at working this out, and I think it's a fairly large proportion of the Earth's lifetime. So something like sort of I can't remember exactly, but it was something like fifteen or twenty, ten or fifteen percent of the Earth's lifetime. Um, the moon will be. Um, in so sort of several hundred million years, if not a billion years, the moon will be about the right size. Now, what's the chance of a moon forming to be about the right size? That, I would have said, is quite unlikely, but not astronomically so. All right, we've got Robin on the line now. Hello, Robin. Hello. Hello, Hello. Sue. Hello there. Uh, you're through to Dr Dave. What's your question? Oh, thank you very much. Hello, sir. Hello. Um, sunset and sunrise times and the winter solstice. Now, there must be a good reason why, as we approach the uh, winter solstice, the evenings start getting lighter about three four days beforehand, whereas the mornings don't get light until about a week later. Now, um, there's an anomaly there which doesn't occur at the summer solstice. I, Is it due to the Earth's wobble? Um, there's all sorts of things which affect exactly what it is. The Earth does wobble a little bit. Um, mostly because the Earth um, is pulled by the Moon and that causes it to wobble a bit like a spinning top and it's also pulled by Jupiter and all sorts of other things. Yeah. Um, I think there's also a big effect because the Earth's orbit isn't perfectly circular. Yeah, yeah. So um, the Earth is actually orbiting on an ellipse and when when the Earth is close to the Sun it's moving more quickly and when it's further away from the Sun it's moving, moving more slowly. And the um, ellipse isn't perfectly lined up with the seasons. 
Oh, it's more complicated than I thought. So, yeah, the, the world is always more complicated than you think. It's, Certainly is, yeah. Whenever I look into something, I suddenly discover it's ten times more complicated than I thought it was. Dave, we're getting lots of reports of um, snow and lightning. Now, uh, Carida, who's in uh, Leiston, Leiston, says um, they've got massive snowstorm there and cracks of lightning and thunder. She wouldn't usually associate thunder and lightning with a snowstorm, but what causes both? And um, Peter in Suffolk, in Woodbridge in Suffolk, says it was snow Snowing, but now it's stopped. Although lightning started, can you explain a little bit more about how this might happen? Um, lightning is a complicated thing, and it's actually quite hard to study because um, it's quite hard to be in. It's quite dangerous to go and actually fly around in a lightning storm when everything's happening. And, and, you, um, and you, certainly, clouds seem to charge up. Um, a lot of it, it seems to involve ice, even in the summer, because um, thunderclouds in the summer are incredibly tall. They're sort of 30,000 feet tall, 10,000 metres tall. Um, and you get very, very strong updraft, and you get water coming up, and then it condenses and freezes, and you get hail and all sorts of things. And then one seems to know that there is actually just one single means of char- of the clouds charging up then ch- you get a big charge distribution positive one end negative one other end then you can get um, sparks jumping in- either inside the cloud which is what's normally known as sheet lightning or from the cloud down to the earth there are various theories about it some of which seem to involve um, air passing um, water and passing ice and they attract um, electrons differently and so you, it's, a, it's a bit like rubbing a um, if you rub a balloon on your head mm. it's a bit like air rubbing across I think it's quite often um, hydrometeors either very small lumps of water or very small lumps of ice and they charge up and then they move about and take that charge somewhere else and it slowly builds up and up and up until there's enough voltage there to jump through the air back again and um, forming a lightning strike um, I've definitely heard of lightning with snow before. It's not. Probably, I haven't. A lot of people are saying, you know, that um, it's uh, it's snowing and then lightning. It's not very common in this country because you need to, to get to get lightning. You need quite sort of violent um, um, sort of storm air currents and the air rushing past each other. And that's normally associated when you've got lots of energy and there's normally more energy about when things are hot. But possibly tonight you've got some fairly you've got very very cold air meeting quite warm air and there's enough energy there to charge things up and actually produce lightning. All right. Well, Derek is in Cherry Hinton. He says they've had two small power cuts within a minute of each other. Maybe a surge. Any ideas, Dave? Could conceivably be lightning somewhere, or it could be um, some snow building up on some something electrical and causing it to trip out. Um, Mike, who's in Colchester, says, why don't we get rainbows in the winter months? I've seen some rainbows recently. You do sometimes get rainbows in the winter months. In some ways, um, I think the real thing is the kind of... You need a specific kind of weather for a rainbow. You need rain and you need sun. A a rainbow is caused because um, when light shines on a water droplet, um, it bounces around inside, and when it goes in and out, it does something called refract. This is the reason why, if you look at a spoon in a glass of water, it looks bent. When light goes in and out, it changes speed, goes into something which moves slower, like water, it changes direction. And different colours of light change direction different amounts. Um, and so, you, you actually, each raindrop actually, if you looked at the light coming out of it, each raindrop would produce a kind of a, a cylindrical rainbow, out, uh, sort of actually a conical rainbow, lots of cones of different light coming out. And each, and if you, you projected it from one raindrop, you could see a rainbow. 
And actually, what, when you see a rainbow, you see lots of different raindrops in different parts of their cone. So some of them look red, some of them look green, some of them look purple. So you get a beautiful rainbow effect. As I was saying, you need the sun and the rain, which means you need weather, which is very, very kind of quite violent. And so you want, ideally you want really heavy rain while the sun is shining at quite a low level. So we tend to see rainbows in the morning and evening because then the sun has more chance to shine through rain. And in the winter, the kind of rain you tend to get is sort of big, sort of stratus clouds, so big flat clouds covering the whole sky, at which point they cover the sun and you can't see it. Or you tend to get very clear days um, without the without any rain. Whereas in the summer, you get convection, you get lots of sun, bit bit of um, ground warms up, it's very hot. You get, um, it then rises upwards, forms clouds, and then you get very heavy rain, which is perfect for forming rainbows. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Now, Mike in Colchester has uh, raised a good point. He says that every year we get snow, we get cancellations for snow on the line using the phrase, the wrong kind of snow caused delays or cancellations. I wonder what are the properties of the wrong kind of snow that causes problems on the track? Dave. Can't say I'm an expert um, railway thing. There's certainly lots and lots of different types of snow. You can get problems if it's very, very sticky because it will tend to stick and build up on electrical things. And if you're not careful, you can then get electrical things arcing out and tripping out because you've just built up a great big pile of snow on your pylon and it shorts out and it doesn't work. I think you can also get problems when the snow is very, very cold and dry it doesn't stay where it's put and it blows around very easily and especially if you've got a railway cutting it can mm. blow right into the railway cutting i'm afraid i don't know the exact problems with uh, exactly what the wrong kind of snow is and i have a feeling there's more than one of them let's go to the phones we've got kieran there hello kieran hello um with reference to the uh wrong kind of snow on the railways uh-huh. um that was used once um, many years back with the advanced passenger train um, when they discovered that the grills weren't fine enough to stop the tiny powdery snow getting into the power unit itself so it came through the grills and it started arcing and um, interrupting all the electrical equipment within it itself the normal snow would have just sort of built up and got caught by the grills but the really powdery stuff went in yes yeah it just um, because it was so fine it was going straight through the grills not to mention it was interfering with all the uh, advanced tilting systems and, and the such because it was designed for sort of like Italy and out of that way of the world. That's where a lot of the technology came from. Um, and they hadn't counted on snow over A's Gill, for example. To my knowledge, it's only been used once as an excuse, but it was the sort of thing that was latched onto. Thank you very much for that, Kieran. Now, from snow to tomato soup, because Derek in Wellingborough sent an email. He says, I've often heard it said, why don't they fill radiators with tomato soup as it appears to store heat much better than water? Is there any new research in the pipeline of this area? Have you heard about that? I, I can guess why tomato soup seems to be a lot hotter than water. And that's because it's got a lot of things dissolved in it. Um, in a similar way to if you add salt to ice, it reduces the melting point and so it'll make the ice melt. If you add salt or sugar or anything which will dissolve in water, it will increase its boiling point. 
This is why adding um, salt to potatoes makes them cook quicker. It's not anything which the salt is doing with potatoes. What it's actually doing is it's increasing the boiling point of the water. The hotter the water is, the faster things cook. So it cooks more quickly. And so tomato soup has got lots and lots of dissolved salt. It's got quite a lot of salt in it, quite a lot of sugar in it. So it's going to increase the boiling point. So if you get hit by... So it starts off instead of 100 degrees C, which boiling water would be, it will probably be at sort of 110, maybe... Anything up to maybe 110 degrees centigrade, possibly even slightly higher. And that means it's going to take a... There's a lot more energy there. It's going to take a lot longer for it to cool down. And also if it splashes on you, it's going to hurt a lot, lot more because it's a lot hotter. So I think it's probably just that it's hotter. It hasn't probably wouldn't have a much larger heat capacity because it's not going to do a lot to the water, and it's just hotter when you boil it, so it stays hot for so it stays kind of warm for longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben, um, who's twelve, who's in Brixworth, he's sent uh, an email in saying, "Dear Doctor Dave, the planet you mentioned at the beginning of the show, you said was made out of water. If this is true, does the water evaporate at the core?" I would have thought if it had been evaporating it wouldn't stay evaporating very long because water would take the heat away incredibly efficiently in some ways it's a bit like if you think of a volcano under the earth um, what tends to happen is that if, if you ever see any pictures of them on tv um, you get lava coming coming out of the earth uh, it tends to be at the center of mid-ocean ridges in the middle of the atlantic middle of the pacific where the ocean floor is spreading um, you get lava coming up and that's very, very hot, and it causes lots of water to boil around it, um, and so the water does evaporate. And then fairly soon after that, as soon as, soon as the water, as soon as the steam moves up a little bit, it gets cooled down enough for the bubble to collapse. Um, this is particularly the case at the bottom of the ocean because it's under a huge pressure, and the higher the pressure, the higher the, higher the boiling point again, which is the reason why pressure cookers make um, food cook faster, because if you increase the pressure, then the water boils at a higher temperature, and if you're under five kilometres of water, then it's going to increase the boiling point quite significantly. If you're in the centre of a very, very large planet, several times larger than the Earth, then I would have thought the boiling point it possibly wouldn't even boil. The pressure is going to be so high that it would probably go into a different state, called probably a supercritical state, where it behaves a bit like a gas and a bit like a li- liquid. So it probably doesn't boil at the centre of this other planet, but it could could be very hot. Mm. All right, well, um, anonymous text in here that says, uh, during periods of Earth's history, forests grew and died, eventually producing the coal and oil reserves that we're using today, releasing carbon back into the atmosphere. Does this mean that all the carbon was in the atmosphere at that time and we are simply returning it so carbon levels were were once much higher than they are now? Um, there's another effect, which is volcanism tends to um, release carbon dioxide. So there's a whole lot of carbon carbon locked up inside, deep inside the Earth, which has been slowly escaping over mi- hundreds of millions of years. So that's been adding carbon to the system, and then life has been taking it out very slowly. Um, they think in the very early parts of um, life of the Earth, um, sort of just after life had um, worked out how to photosynthesize and um, take carbon, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Um, the, the, the original algae which learned how to do this was so effective at doing it that they took out all the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, got rid of the greenhouse effect entirely, and then caused the Earth to freeze up and turn into a snowball. And then, then most of the life died, so everything stopped. 
and then slowly volcanism built up levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere again until the earth warmed up enough for things to melt um, and so that even if we were just releasing all the carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere that it used to be I think there have been times when carbon dioxide has been higher than now certainly billions of years ago most of the atmosphere was carbon dioxide before life before um, green plants developed or green algaes developed um, but that but the sun is now brighter than it used to be so that so even if there was used, did used to be more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere um that didn't mean that it was any hotter than now because the sun was dimmer um and also the real i mean in fact things like global warming um aren't going to it's not really save the planet the planet's going to be fine whatever we do it's not even really saving life life is probably going to be okay it's actually really saving humans um we're not we, we we don't really have the power to kill off life on earth we probably have the power to kill off all the interesting nice life which we like looking at things like dogs and cats and um lions and things and we probably do have the power and we certainly have the power to um change the climate so much that our civilization would break down and life would get very very unpleasant all right. Well, that brings me to um, an email, actually. We've just got time for this. Are humans really at the top of the tree as far as intelligence is concerned, or are we just more arrogant and destructive than most other species? There do seem to be some other quite intelligent species. Um, I don't think we quite appreciate... I think some of them are a lot more intelligent than we think. Um, although things like people have looked at dolphins and they have quite large brains, but actually if you look very closely at the brains, um, a lot of that brain is actually specialised nerve cells for keeping the rest of it warm because they swim around deep in the oceans, which is very, very cold. So quite a lot of uh, dolphin brain is actually sort of um, radiated to keep them nice and um, toasty and warm. Um, but I mean, I think I certainly we haven't. There's no evidence for any creatures to be as intelligent as humans, certainly. But the real killer that humans have is our ability to um, manipulate things, be intelligent, and manipulate things with our hands. So building tools. And whilst there are other creatures who do build tools, certainly not on the same scale as humans do, which is the reason why we seem to have taken over and causing quite so much chaos. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. 